Please be seated. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 2 will be our text for this morning, although we will begin in chapter 1, verse 17, which as I mentioned last week is actually the beginning of chapter 2 in the Hebrew text, and you'll understand why as we read it. With our Bibles open now, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are inclined toward mercy and grace, towards compassion and forgiveness, that you sovereignly rule over all in wisdom and power and in holiness. Lord, we pray now that as we come to your word that you would open our eyes to behold the wonderful things in it, open it to us that we might understand it, and open our hearts to your word that we might be changed by it. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Jonah, beginning in chapter 1, verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. May he add his blessing to it now. So have you ever, as I have, moment of self-confession here, have you ever used the excuse that you're simply not in the mood to do something that you've been asked to do? Whether that's an obligatory task or a uh, recreational task. Here are some examples. Uh, These may or may not be quotes from my own life. (laughs) I'm not really in the mood to hang that light. Uh, I'm not really in the mood to mow the lawn today. I'm not really in the mood to play a game this evening. I do often find myself in the mood to watch sporting events when they come on, but not as often to do household chores and so forth. I imagine that many of us have used this excuse in one way or another. We need the mood to strike us before we decide to do something that we either ought to do or even, frankly, would enjoy doing. We just find simple excuses to avoid doing. Have to be in the mood. And when I was young, and I say this unapologetically, I loved Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, I still do. I love Calvin and Hobbes. I'm teaching my children the ways uh, as we speak. There's an episode in... Calvin and Hobbes, where Calvin is out playing in the yard, I think of the sandbox. He's digging, and you see he's got some, like, earth-moving toys around him, and he's playing in the sand. 
Hobbes walks up behind him and says, have you gotten an idea yet for that story? Implying, I think the implication is that Calvin was meant to write a short story for homework for school, right? And which he's always blowing off. If you remember, Calvin's teacher, Mrs. Wormwood, uh, was just the worst. And she always gave him the most difficult homework assignments. And he lamented every day how his life was being frittered away in foolish tasks like math and writing and science and so forth. He had better things to do down by the creek with his tiger. So Hobbes says, have you, have you come up with an idea for your story yet? And Calvin replies, you can't just turn on creativity like a faucet. You have to be in the right mood. Hobbes replies, what mood is that? And Calvin answers the words of so many high school and college students, last-minute panic. <laughs> Sometimes we need to be in that state of last-minute panic before we really decide to do the thing we're supposed to do. Now, this is a humorous critique of many children's homework practice, but I think it's not far from being an accurate critique of many Christians' prayer lives. I don't feel like praying now. <clears throat> or the age-old, I'm too busy to spend time in prayer this morning. We don't say this out loud, but what we think is, I haven't exhausted my own resources yet. I'm not sure I'll like the answer God would give me if I were to actually pray to him with sincerity. And so we don't pray unless the mood is right. And that mood for us is far too often last-minute panic. I remember getting a greeting card one time. It might have been a get well card for something or another. <clears throat> and there was a, a skier. It was a cartoon, a drawing of a skier who had gone down this large slope and had uh, gone off the edge of what was clearly a pretty high precipice. And you could see they had like the, you know how they draw a cartoon with the lines indicating that he's about to fall at a rapid pace? And he had a little thought bubble over his head. And it said, dear Lord, I know I haven't talked to you since the last time I was in trouble, dot, dot, dot. And that's how we often treat prayer, isn't it? Now, in a recent sermon, I commented about how great our access to God Almighty is. He's our Father. He's our King. He's the Creator. We can ask Him, according to Paul, for unimaginable thing, uh, imaginable things, far more than we can ask or imagine, and He is able to provide. And yet, sometimes we fail to pray for these big things, perhaps out of a lack of a belief in His ability or his willingness to do great things for us. But we need to remember that we have access to a big God who is able to do far more than we could ask or imagine. But I was recently struck by a quote from C.S. Lewis where he identifies the, the opposite end of the spectrum. He sort of criticizes the opposite end of failure to pray for God to God for big things, and he says that we often fail to pray to God for small things. He says this, I fancy... We may sometimes be deterred from small prayers by a sense of our own dignity rather than God's. In other words, Lewis is saying that we don't pray for small things because we think that we can handle them by ourselves. Why would I bother God for such a small thing? Why would I bother God for this little thing like, I, I, I've been driving for 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years, and I've had relative success. I don't need to pray to God before going out on a journey. That's a small thing. I can take care of the road. Or it's just a common cold, no big deal. Modern medicine being what it is, common cold, I can take care of this. I just need to take some Tylenol, drink some water, get some rest, and I'll be okay. Don't need to pray about this one. That's a small thing. Fill in the blank for your own circumstance. I'm sure that you know what I mean when I talk about the small things that we often leave unsaid or unrequested in prayer. 
likewise the big things. And so both kind of come to a head here in our text. And the question I want you to ask yourself this morning is, what keeps me from praying? What is it that keeps me from praying? Maybe you might say it this way, what mood do I have to be in before I really start to pray? I think what we see in Jonah chapter 2 today is that one of the principal reasons why we wait to pray or struggle to pray or simply don't pray is because we have failed to apprehend the grace and mercy of the God to whom we pray and our desperate need for him to intervene. Let me say that again. I think that what Jonah is showing us in chapter 2 is that one of the main reasons why we don't pray or struggle to pray, or simply fail to pray, is that we have not apprehended the grace and mercy of the God to whom we pray and our desperate need for him to intervene. And so we want to talk about what elements are a part of a proper prayer posture. Now, I wrote that on paper before saying it out loud, and I've regretted it since about 9 o'clock this morning. But we're going to talk about a proper prayer posture. And I believe that Jonah chapter 2 shows us three elements. Number one, we need to have an awareness of our desperate and dependent condition. We need an awareness of our desperate and dependent condition. Number two, we need an apprehension of the mercy of God toward us. And number three, we need gratitude for the salvation that he alone can offer. So let's look at these together, the proper posture of prayer. First of all is an awareness of our desperate and dependent condition. Now, you've read Jonah chapter 1 and 2, or you perhaps were here last week and saw the outcome of Jonah's ridiculous rebellion. A giant storm was cast upon the sea by the Lord, and Jonah uh, was thrown overboard into the raging sea. Uh, And in verse 17, which we read this morning, he was snatched up by a giant fish and was in its belly. You could be forgiven for thinking that the worst thing going on in Jonah's life right now is the fact that he's in the belly of a fish. That seems pretty terrible, and we tend to think of our desperation, our circumstances, mostly in terms of geography like this. Jonah's situation, his trouble, was his circumstance. He's surrounded by the guts of a fish, which is surrounded by water, which was in torment because of uh, his sin. And so Jonah's worst condition right now, you may be forgiven for thinking, is the fact that he's in the belly of the fish. Put, put yourself there for a minute. Think about this. Now, I love sushi. Um, sushi is at the top of my list. Being in the belly of sushi is the bottom of my list. <laughs> Good fish is really good. You don't have to agree with me. That's fine. You'll, when you get to heaven, you'll be glorified. You'll know. <laughs> good fish is the best. But bad fish is really, really difficult to even be around. Rotting fish. Um, whales are filled with rotting seafood. So I don't know what sort of fish this was, and that's not really relevant. But Jonah is in the belly of a large fish surrounded by the decaying carcasses of smaller fish. Imagine the smell. Just for a second, just imagine the smell that Jonah is experiencing right now. Add to that 
running through Jonah's mind is the likelihood of death by digestion. That's horrifying. It's horrifying to think about. We, we know of stories of people, sailors who have fallen off of ships and have been snatched up by a large animal and was inside of their system for some time and then spat back out. <clears throat> and what we know is that the enzymes in the stomach acids of those fish cause such a breakdown of the flesh that they come out almost looking leprous. They're white. Their hair is white. They're bleached white. Their clothes have rotted off because it's that that's that bad of an environment for a human to be in. And so Jonah is lying there, oh, in total darkness, total slimy, smelly darkness, being digested. Just, have you ever been to a cave where they turn the lights off at some point in the cavern just to show you what real darkness is like? And you do this with your hand, and you think you can see your hand move, but the reality is it's your brain playing tricks on you. You cannot total darkness, the complete absence of light. This is Jonah's situation. So as I say this, those with claustrophobia among us or fish allergies, your anxiety is going through the roof right now. And that's okay. Jonah's may have been as well. But we put ourselves in his shoes and it's easy for us to say, oh, well, obviously the worst thing going on in Jonah's life right now is the fact that he is being digested by a giant fish. And you would be wrong to conclude that. Jonah tells us what the worst part of his situation is. Look at verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. I am driven away from your sight. The worst thing going on in Jonah's life is that he has been driven away from the Lord. His distance from God was great. His distance from God was great. And that was his biggest concern in this moment. His greatest concern was that he is experiencing distance from his Lord. Perhaps you have not trusted in Christ for salvation and you find yourself here this morning as an unbeliever, a guest of a family member or a friend, perhaps a regular attender of church, but at no point in your life have you thought to yourself, I desperately need Christ Jesus as my Savior. My friends, listen to me now. Your greatest plight in life is not your cancer. It's not your waning bank account. It's not the economic stability in the world around you. It's not the dangerous neighborhood you live in. It's not the increased pollution in the atmosphere. It is your distance from God. That is your greatest problem. For unbelievers, Paul refers to them in the book of Ephesians as without God or hope in the world. Jonah is experiencing what that feels like. And I'm going to come to the reason why in our next point. But Jonah is experiencing separation and distance from God in the belly of this fish. And for believers, don't miss this because Jonah's a covenant child. Uh, What Jonah's experiencing is also the worst thing that we can experience. Distance from God and his will. A failure to live lives of faithful obedience to God is the worst place that we can be. Of course, nothing can separate us from God's love. Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Paul says that neither life nor death nor angels nor demons nor any other thing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. But you can live functionally as an unbeliever. You can 
live your life distant from God, failing to obey, failing to worship, not desiring of living a life that's pleasing to him and increasing in your knowledge of and love for Jesus Christ. There's nowhere worse to be. Heaven forbid that God bless you with material wealth and good health and a happy family and a good working car and a steady job, and yet you live a life of willful rebellion against him. There's nothing worse for you because you're lulled into a sense of complacency that God is really for you. It is far better, it is far better to be full of sickness, in relational strife all around, desperately crying out to God for provision because you've lost your job, than to be far from him in unbelief or disobedience. Conversely, we might say it's better to be close to God in faith and without anything worldly to show for it than to be at the top of the corporate ladder with overflowing bank accounts and a garage full of toys, but yet lacking the hope of eternal salvation in Christ alone. And Jonah sees this here. Notice that nowhere in our text does Jonah say, Lord, help me get out of this fish. I am really sorry, and now that I've said that to you, I gave you yours, now you give me mine. I'm sorry, help me out. Jonah never prays to come out of the fish because that's not his problem. He prays to be restored to fellowship with God. Look at, look at with me. He says in verse 2, um, excuse me, in verse 4, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. In verse 7, my prayer came into your holy temple, and especially in verse 9, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. He's talking about worship. Jonah wants to be restored to a place of worshipful obedience to God, not a place of life on dry land, because he knows that his greatest problem is not geographic, it's not physical, it's spiritual. He's distant from God, and it's his soul that's troubled. He says in verse 7, my soul was fainting away within me. While his skin is being damaged by the acids of the fish's stomach, it's his soul that's fainting within him because of his distance from God. Do we feel that way at all about our relationship with God? Oh, that God would give us sensitive consciences that when we're disobedient and sinful and far from his will, that we would feel that distance, that we would experience what it means to be far from God and hate the way that it feels and turn around running headlong back to him, to the Father who always welcomes us with open arms and says, come to me, come to me, come to me. In our stubbornness, though, we think that our Worst situation is physical rather than spiritual. Now, of course, I don't mean to minimize. There is a significant physical element to Joseph's, uh, Joseph, Jonah's suffering here. He talks about the weeds were wrapped around my head. The waters closed in to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The bars of the earth were going to be closed upon me forever. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, he says in verse 2. But while those things are true, and God doesn't minimize those, he cares about the fact that we suffer in this life, that we experience relational difficulties, that we undergo sicknesses and trials in this world. God is not indifferent to those because he didn't just save our souls to eternal life, but he saved us body and soul. Our Heidel, the Heidelberg Catechism tells us that our greatest hope in life and death is that we belong both body and soul to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so he cares about those things. And in fact, he has the intention to redeem all those things in the new heavens and the new earth. But it's better to go into heaven maimed 
and to enter through the gates because of sickness than to go into hell full of health and wealth and prosperity. And so our greatest need is not our physical needs at our basis level, at Jonah's basis level. His greatest need was not to be vomited out, but to be restored into right relationship with God. Imagine that you want to go on a vacation with your family, and your minivan has both a front right tire that's flat and no engine. If this is your van, I'm, I would like to talk to you about how to buy a vehicle next time. But if this is what you have, you're missing your front right tire and no engine, and you have the tow service come and pick up your vehicle, take it to the mechanic and say, my front right tire is flat, and I know for a fact that I can't drive on the highways without four inflated tires. So I'd like you to replace it. And he says, okay, I can do that. Replaces the tire, loads it up on the flatbed, takes it back to your house. You load all of your luggage in the back, all the stuff on the roof, all of your kids in the car. You sit in, you put the key in the ignition. You say, here we go, family. We're going on vacation. Nothing can stop us now. We have four working tires. How foolish. How foolish a thought. None of us would actually do that. Yet why is it? that we approach the Christian life as if the most important thing we need is air in our tires rather than an engine that works by the Spirit's power. We care far more about the outside of our car being shiny so when our friends see it, it looks clean and nice. We don't want dents and scratches. We want nice tires. We want the inside to be vacuumed out and cleaned. And we're basically whitewashed sepulchers full of dead things on the inside. And Jonah says, my greatest need is not to be spit out, but to be brought back into relationship with God. Do you know that that's your greatest need? Are you aware of your desperate condition like Jonah was, both physically and spiritually? Physically, we can't take a breath without God. Our hearts beat at his command. Every molecule in your body, every red and white blood cell flows through your body at his ordination, at his command because of his power. You need him to live and move and have your being. Of course we need God. Yet we live life as though our daily bread comes from our local grocery store and we purchase it from money from our bank accounts that we earn from wise investments or from hard work. It's simply no wonder that we act like we don't need God for our daily bread. It's simply no wonder that we don't pray for him about small things. What about your spiritual needs? Are you aware of your desperate spiritual condition? Do you pray for illumination every time you read the word? Or do you think to yourself, I've read Jonah before, and at my last church the pastor preached through Jonah, so I can just show up on Sunday and hear the sermon and get what I get out of it. Or are you aware that spiritual things are only discerned spiritually and you need his spirit to illumine your mind to understand the truth of God's word. What about your singing? Oh, I love looking out. Some of you have grown increasingly uncomfortable with my direct eye contact during musical worship. But that's, I love looking out and seeing so many of you singing with your hymn books down here because the words are ingrained, engraved on your minds. And you know them because you've sung them so many times. But I ask you to ask yourself, have I sung them so many times that I can sing them without looking? Or have I sung them so many times that they become a part of me? And that I'm praying to God in worship when I sing. And I'm confessing my faith from my heart, not from a printed page. You need a spirit to do that. We ask him to inhabit our praises. Because that's the only way they're received in spirit and in truth. 
What about sitting under the preaching of the word? Do you ask God to give you attentive ears and soft soil in your heart and scaleless eyes that you might see and hear and comprehend what are the wonderful works of God? We need him for all these things. We are desperate in our condition and totally dependent on God. And Jonah became aware of his desperate and dependent condition. He was desperately far from God on the verge of death and in desperate need of God alone to restore him to fellowship. We need to remember that we can no more save ourselves from sin or free ourselves from the shackles of its bondage or escape from the righteous wrath of God by our works or merit or efforts than Jonah could escape from the belly of this fish. This is not... I, I'm not intending to be humorous here. This is not the VeggieTales version of Jonah where the little vegetables decide it's time to get out so they try to wriggle around and make the, the whale sneeze them out. Jonah is dying. He is a dead man being eaten by the fish's stomach and he can in no way save himself. He's buried alive in a watery grave. He can do nothing to affect his condition. And so he doesn't cry out that God would cause the fish to spit him out. He cries out that God would welcome him back into right relationship with him because that's what he needs. And you and I need to do the same thing. If you are an unbeliever here, what you need first and foremost of all is God's work in saving you. You cannot wiggle your way out of death. You cannot work your way out of death. You cannot fight your way out of death and bondage to sin and slavery to it. You need God and God alone through his son, Jesus Christ, and the purchase of redemption in his blood to free you from sin and death and to welcome you to new life in him. And so we cry out like Jonah, save me, just save me. Take everything from me, but save me to yourself. Jonah says, what I desire most is to look again upon your temple, that my prayer would come into your temple, and that my heart would be full of worship. That's what we need. Jonah is aware of his dependence and his desperate condition, but God gives him something else here in this uh, fish. God shows Jonah what we call a hard mercy or what one commentator refers to as merciful wrath. Jonah needs to apprehend the mercy of God. Look at the language of sovereignty all over this text. In verse 3, for you cast me into the deep. Continuing in verse 3, uh, quoting from Psalm 46, all your waves and your billows have passed over me. And then look at verse 6. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O God. Jonah needs to be laid low by God's merciful wrath in order to be lifted up by God's merciful salvation. As one person said, God must kill a man before he saves him. 
Jonah needed to be brought low. He needed to be reminded of God's sovereignty in his plight. All of your waves and your breakers, you cast me into the deep. He's reminded that his circumstance, while not dismissing his own responsibility, look back at chapter 1 with me. In chapter 1, verse 12, the sailors say, what should we do? He says, throw me into the sea, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah takes responsibility for why he's here, but he acknowledges God's sovereignty over it. And he realizes that God is using this situation to humble him to the ground so that God alone can restore him with a renewed sense and appreciation of what mercy is all about. Jonah had presumed upon his covenant status with God in chapter 1. I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the dry land. He presumed upon his relationship with God. And God said, you don't need to presume. You need to experience what my mercy looks like. Remember, Jonah wasn't willing to show mercy to those wicked Ninevites. And now Jonah, in his wickedness, is experiencing mercy by the hand of God. Jonah, one way of thinking about this is that Jonah needs to experience in this fish what the Ninevites experience every day in their wicked great city. Jonah was cut off from God's presence, it said in verse 4. I've been driven far from you. The Ninevites are cut off from God's presence and without hope in the world apart from God. Jonah is feeling in the belly what they are living in their city. Jonah said, I'm disconnected from your temple. The temple is that place where God had promised to dwell among his people and to fellowship with them. It was the emblem of his presence among his covenant people. And Jonah's now cut off from that. He's disconnected from it. Those Ninevites had no access to God, no awareness of his holiness and his perfection, his love and his mercy and his kindness. They were disconnected from the temple of God in their wickedness. And now Jonah's experiencing that in the fish. Jonah is in the pit of death. His head is wrapped around by seaweed. He's at the bottom of the sea. The pressure of of the whale's belly is closing in around him. The stench and decay of death fills his nostrils. He's holding his own vomit in, even as he's waiting for God to cause the fish to vomit him out. He's experiencing living death, even as these Ninevites experience spiritual death every day in the rebellion and rejection of God. And Jonah needed to know it in person before he'd go there and tell them about it, what their need was. This hard mercy is a gift of grace from God. It's a kindness of God to show Jonah, to remind Jonah how and why he ought to pray and then what his life ought to look like in light of that mercy received. Jonah finally prays. Jonah finally prays, and it's worth noting that when he does, it's after he sees that God is willing to show mercy to him. Jonah had been encouraged earlier to pray, if you'll recall. Remember how the sailors were much more godlike in chapter 1 than Jonah was? In verse 6, they say, Arise, call out to your God. Pray to him, in other words. Perhaps he will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The storm which threatened to kill him, The storm which threatened to kill the sailors, his rebellion against God, the fear of the doom and and the perishing and all that stuff was not enough to drive him to, to repentance or to prayer because he hadn't experienced God's mercy at that point. It was when he himself experienced the salvation that the fish provided him that he cries out to God for mercy. He 
had an experience of God's mercy. In other words, he apprehended the mercy of God for him in the fish, and that drove him to prayer and repentance. Now, my favorite question in the shorter catechism, there are several that are very good. I'm, I'm not gonna, I don't want to argue with anybody about what, which one's the best. Question 87 is my favorite. It asks the question, what is repentance unto life? We don't use this language very well anymore, but I want you to think <clears throat> very carefully about what it says. Repentance of life unto life is a saving grace wherein a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, doth with grief and hatred for his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. What was Jonah in chapter 1? Disobedient. What's Jonah experiencing now? The mercy of God in the fish. And what's Jonah going to do? Full purpose of obedience. He still doesn't like it in chapter 3. But he's purpose in his heart to live out the mercy that he's experienced. Have you apprehended the mercy of God in Christ Jesus? We don't use that term very often, do we? Uh, the only time that I can think of that we use the term apprehend in a sort of a relatively common sense is when we think about a police officer chasing down a criminal and apprehending them, right? A police officer chases down a criminal down the road, for example, and catches up to that person and lays a hold of them and apprehends that criminal and handcuffs that criminal and now has ownership of that criminal and, and is taking into his own possession this person who's been apprehended. That's the idea. That's the idea that the Westminster divines have in mind of apprehending. It's of laying hold of, of wrapping your arms around, of handcuffing the mercy of God in Christ to yourself, knowing it, taking ownership of it, believing it because you've experienced it. It's not a throwaway theological phrase. The mercy of God in Christ Jesus. It is, in fact, the foundation of our assurance of eternal life. The mercy of God in Christ Jesus. It's mercy because we're totally undeserving of it. We don't get what we deserve, which is hell. Jonah doesn't get what he deserves. You expect Jonah to get thrown in, and then the light fades as he slowly sinks down into the murky darkness, and then he drowns. But God appoints salvation for him in verse 17. Be careful before you presume that your difficult circumstances are God's wrath against you and not his mercy toward you. Because if Jonah only interpreted the digestive enzymes of the fish's stomach as God's wrath, he would have been lost forever to the sea. Rather, he saw his difficult circumstances as a result of his sin and as a merciful grace from God meant to turn him to repentance and obedience. He apprehends the mercy of God. So I ask you, perhaps here among us this morning, sinner who have never thought of how your sin offends a holy God and violates his holy law. You have never given thought to the fact the only way for salvation is to be found in Jesus Christ alone. Have you apprehended the mercy of God in sending his perfect and righteous son to die a sinner's death in your place, to bear the sins that you committed, to pay for the penalty that you can't pay, so that way you can receive nothing but the mercy and grace and forgiveness and steadfast love of God from this moment into all eternity. 
Have you apprehended the mercy of God in Christ Jesus? If you have, the first part of that question says, a sinner out of a true sense of his sin will turn from it with grief and hatred. With grief and hatred. What a merciful God. How merciful was he to Jonah? How merciful is he to you and me? God appointed a fish to rescue Jonah. That was his means of salvation from the watery grave. And in understanding, when Jonah understood that, he responded in repentance and cries for forgiveness and salvation. And this is what we must do. God has appointed a rescue for us, even Jesus. His death on the cross is the payment for our sins. His blood washes clean all who come to him in humble repentance, asking for forgiveness. So Jonah calls you, I call you to repent and believe in Jesus for salvation. Apprehend the mercy of God that's been made available to you in his son who saved you from a watery grave, even as the fish saved Jonah. Now there's a third element to the proper prayer posture that we talked about that we'll look at in conclusion. Of course, it begins with an awareness of your desperate and dependent condition. You need to realize that you need saving before you cry out to God for salvation. And you need to lay hold of, understand thoroughly the mercy of God in Christ in order to believe in the only way of salvation. But that, those two things combine to lead us to a third element of uh, this proper prayer posture we've been looking at this morning. And that's one of gratitude of grateful thanksgiving, prayers that are offered up from the heart of a person who loves God's mercy and has experienced his kindness are prayers of gratitude and thanksgiving. Look at verse 9 with me. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Again, I feel that I've moved beyond the need to remind you of where Jonah is. And yet he concludes his prayer by saying what? Thank you, God. Praise you, Lord. One critic commented on this uh, chapter in Jonah. He says the greatest argument against the validity of this psalm, he, he understands this as a song, a psalm of praise. In fact, there's somewhere around a dozen different psalms that are quoted or alluded to in this short passage of Jonah's prayer. Now, as a, just an aside very briefly, I think that the fact that Jonah quotes from somewhere around a dozen psalms in his prayer is a pretty good plug for the value of memorizing Scripture. Uh, because if you ever find yourself in the belly of a fish and your cell phone battery dies, you're going to have a hard time looking up that verse that makes that promise that you really want to remember in your prayer right now. This is why we store up God's Word in our heart, why we memorize and meditate and chew on Scripture that we might be blessed and be like trees planted by streams of water. Jonah clearly knew the Word. We don't uh, deny inspiration here. But this psalm here, this psalm prayer, this critic says, the greatest argument against the validity, the fact that it's real, is that it is not a psalm of appeal and petition. I don't know about you, but if I were in, again, all joking aside, if I were in the belly of a fish or having been buried alive or at the verge of death for some, any number of reasons, my instinct would be to pray that I would be 
physically restored, healed, helped, fixed. Petition God, appeal to God for help. God, spit me out of this fish. Do that thing where they blow all the water at the top and I'll go and then I'll, if I got to tread water for a while, I'll do that. Help me. Help me out here, God. I pray to you, help me now. That's how most of us, if we were honest with ourselves, would approach a circumstance like this. Just get me out of here and then I'll go to Nineveh. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. Let me finish this quote. The great argument against the validity of the psalm is that it is not a psalm of appeal and petition, but an act of thanksgiving and praise. Who does this? We read about a few pious characters in Scripture. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Right? Here I am in the belly of the fish. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Thank you, Lord, with thanksgiving and praise. I will offer sacrifices to you. Other than that, my concern, my question is for this critic that wrote this quote, I wonder, I wonder if the reason he thinks that it's so unusual <clears throat> is because in his experience, he doesn't know a lot of Christians that respond to difficult circumstances like this. Now, let me, let me offer a, a, a gentle warning uh, to you in light of the age in which we live and the fact that we have, as a culture, a propensity to air our grievances on social media. Every one of your Facebook friends knows about all of the things that upset you. They know about all of your complaints against your spouse or your neighborhood, against the government or your co-workers. They know about your disgruntledness with your employer. They know about your frustration with your pastor. They know about the difficulty you're having with your significant other. They know about the rebelliousness of your children, your desire to have a bigger house and better things and nicer stuff and whatever the case may be. They know about your sickness and your lament over all of the difficulty that you've experienced in life. And what they need to see is your thankfulness to a God who sovereignly rules over all and who loves you with an infinite love, even to give you his own son, how would he not withhold? How would he possibly withhold from you any other thing? They don't hear our gratitude, which is why they read Jonah and go, no way. The prayer posture of one who has apprehended the mercy of God and is aware of their desperate condition without him, is a prayer posture of gratitude and thanksgiving. Do your prayers sound more like you're talking to your cosmic butler, asking him to pick up some stuff from the grocery store for you and make your bed when he gets home? Or do they sound like the prayers of Jonah, who's about to be digested by a fish, and yet he says, I love you and I worship you and salvation belongs to you alone. That's the posture of prayer. Grateful prayer. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah's rescue was a mercy from God. It was God's salvation. And it came at the time when Jonah was the most rebellious in his entire life. Fleeing from God, rejecting God's word, hiding from God in the belly of the ship, and unwilling to pray for God, to God to ask for mercy for these poor, helpless sailors. And they throw him in the sea, and you would be right to assume that justice demands his demise. But God's salvation snatches him out of the water, keeps him inside the watery tomb, 
and then spits him out onto dry land at God's command. When Jonah says at the end of verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord, he means from inception to consummation, salvation is a work of God. And the same is true for us. The same is true for us. Until we come to grips with our need for salvation and that the Lord initiates it, he's the one that sent the fish when Jonah was his enemy. And he's the one that sent his son, our great rescue from the grave. Even while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, in no uncertain terms, that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. The inception was God's and the consummation was God's. At the end of the day, the Lord caused the fish to vomit Jonah out onto the dry land. What does Jesus do for us in salvation? Jesus snatches us up from the water of death. He keeps us in himself like the ark. And then he brings us forth out of the grave, out of death, out of the waters of our sinful rebellion, and births us out. New birth we receive in Christ. Just like Jonah, when he spit back out on the land, of course the imagery is grotesque. He's vomited out, and that's what he deserves. But the reality is he's born again. He's alive again. He was, it was as if he was birthed onto the shores of Nineveh. Aware now of God's mercy. And that's what Christ does for us in salvation. He receives us out of the grave. He saves us from it. He stores us safely inside himself. And then he brings us to new life in the kingdom. The fact that Jonah prays at the height of his rebellion and he knows that God hears him, and in fact God does, is the greatest comfort to unbelievers backsliding Christians, and those approaching the pit of spiritual death. All you need to do is ask him for forgiveness. And he does. Look at Jonah. Look at what he receives here. So what keeps you from praying to him? If you know that he will never cast out any of those, any of those who come to him in humble repentance and faith, why are you slow to pray? Why is our prayer posture so poor? Because we don't really think we're that dependent. We don't think that our condition is that desperate. We don't apprehend the mercy of God to us in Christ Jesus. And we don't believe he's truly merciful, truly sovereign, truly covenantally committed to all his children. I want to close with the words from Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7. I want you to hear this as an exhortation to those among us who don't believe in Christ to come to him now in faith. And to those who do, but have run away from him in rebellion, to repent out of a true sense of your sin, grief and hatred from it. Turn unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you this morning for the great salvation that is ours in Christ. Oh, Lord, that we would comprehend, become aware of our desperate need for you. 
that we would be aware of our physical and spiritual dependence on you for all things. And then, Lord, that we would apprehend, fully understand, lay hold of with all of our might the mercy of God in Christ Jesus toward us sinners. And when we do, Lord, would you turn our tongues to songs of praise and thanksgiving. Help us to live lives of humble gratitude and awareness and recognition of your goodness and mercy toward us, that we wouldn't presume upon your mercy and our salvation, but rather that it would inform every breath we take, every step we take, every bite we eat, everything we do, whether eating or drinking, that we would do it to your glory because you deserve it. Lord, we pray these things in the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, our Rescuer from the grave, Jesus Christ. Amen.